Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 154-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Julie Golia, Director of Public History at Brooklyn Historical Society, and Zahir Ali, Oral Historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. On June 14, 1978, New York City police killed black businessman and community organizer Arthur Miller by chokehold. Miller was a well-regarded community member in the Brooklyn neighborhood of Crown Heights, and his killing sparked protests and debates about race, violence, and policing. In the 40 years that have passed, his story has been largely forgotten, but the issues raised by his killing remain as relevant as ever. In this episode, we explore the life of Arthur Miller and the impact of his death by police on his family, neighborhood, and nation. Arthur Miller was a husband, father, community leader, and businessman based in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. He owned a store. He owned a construction business. He met one-on-one with Shirley Chisholm, with Adam Clayton Powell, and he became very energized after meeting with them and had a lot of ideas and plans about things that he wanted to do in the community. When the police picked him up, he was alive, okay? However, he dies in police custody, the result of a chokehold. Inside this folder, we find a bunch of things. We find some letters, we find some clippings, and it also says the Nostrand Avenue Community Commerce Association was formed last March to coordinate and facilitate economic development projects within the Crown Heights area. According to Hampton, NACA is a posthumous legacy surviving Arthur Miller, who Hmm. along with Andrew Gill, founded the association. Here's Andrew Gill, the head of the New Muse, a cultural museum, and you have Arthur Miller, a businessman, working together to establish this association to foster the growth of businesses in Nostrand Avenue. This association was founded in March, and April, May, June, not even three months passed, and this life was taken away. I've had a permit for a gun that he used to wear on his side. Mm-hmm. He got the permit uh, through the police department. He took shooting lessons on target things through the police department. The police was always out building, uh, lifting weights with him, doing everything. So they all knew he had the gun. All of a sudden, the guy said he held up his hand. They saw his gun and the police panicked. Why would they panic? It was holstered. They knew he had it. And he said, all hell broke loose. He said, I don't know what was it. He said, they were, they just, there were so many of them on him. We don't know what happened. And then they drug him in the car. And it was pushed under the rug as usual when they told a black man. To help us explore the life and legacy of Arthur Miller, we're joined by Amaka Okachukwu, who is assistant professor of sociology at George Mason University. Amaka examines racial politics, social movements, and urban studies in her research. So this is a little bit of a welcome back home. Amaka and I worked together on the Voices of Crown Heights project here at BHS. She was the project coordinator. And it is in part during our work on this project where we really had a chance to explore the story of Arthur Miller in greater detail. So Amaka, welcome back. We're so excited to have you back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So first, I think it would be great 
great if you guys could just set the scene. Who was Arthur Miller? Yeah, because, you know, a lot of times I've just taken for granted people know who Arthur Miller is or, right. or you know, that or there isn't the other, the Arthur Miller. You know, I've been Miller. telling people, like, yeah, we're doing this thing on Arthur Miller. And they were like, oh, Long really? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the playwright? Yeah. And it's just like, no, no, yeah. no, no, no. So let's start Who's, with. Let me reframe the question then. Yes. Who is our Arthur Miller? Yes. Yes. Okay, so Arthur Miller was a husband, father, community leader, and businessman um, based in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. He was originally from the Bahamas and moved to Florida as a young boy with family members. He and his wife Florence moved to Crown Heights uh, about 1960, and they stayed in Crown Heights in the 1960s and the 1970s. They quickly started a family. They had about four children. And he initially was the super to his building at 925 Prospect Place. But he went on to do many um, things in addition to being the super. So he owned a store on Nostrand Avenue. He owned a construction business, which um, actually got a lot of work after the 1977 blackout. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, He actually was approached by the owners of Key Foods, which is still on Nostrand, to renovate the Key Foods after the 1977 blackout. He also was in the process of renovating a space for his additional endeavors. And so this space was on Nostrand Avenue. I believe it's in the building that the black... Uh, Lady Theater is in right now Mm. on Nostrand Avenue. Mm. The basement was supposed to be a roller skating rink for the youth. The main floor was going to be a nightclub for adults um, named Lolisa, which is named after his uh, youngest daughter. And the upper floors were to be the office for his construction business. So Arthur Miller is doing things. I mean, this is not... He's uh, a mover and a shaker, clearly. Yeah, yeah. Well, it raises for me questions. I mean, we've talked about this on past episodes, but I wonder if you guys can also describe a little bit about what what Crown Heights is like at this time. What is who lives there? What is this community like? What kind of role does Miller play in that? When Arthur Miller moves to Crown Heights, he is part of this, I guess, second wave of West Indian uh, migrants who are settling in central Brooklyn and particularly in Crown Heights. Crown Heights, of course, had been a major uh, center of Jewish life in the late 19th century and then in the early 20th century. By the mid 20th century, it became known as the worldwide capital of the Lubavitch Hasidic community. So Crown Heights had this really interesting ethnic mix. By the 70s, though, of course, Crown Heights is part of New York City, which is undergoing tremendous transformation and largely due to the stresses of a financial crisis. Yes. So the mid-1970s, you have the um, financial crisis in New York, which incredibly sort of shifted the city, right? So much of how we understand even today New York City in regards to gentrification and the conditions that produced that, harking back to this period of the 1970s financial crisis. And so part of the outcome of the financial crisis is that the really robust public sector that New York City was known for was essentially rolled back, right? Mm -hmm. Social services um, were cut. Lots of community programs were cut. Hospitals, clinics, schools. So much was cut back during that time period because the city was broke, essentially. And so this is a period in which crime begins to rise in New York City. 
And one way that Arthur Miller in particular responded to the rise in crime was when he started the Four Star Black Association, which was a black association that organized community activities for Mm -hmm. young people, sports, other kinds of entertainment. They took young people to amusement parks outside of the city. They took the adults to on shopping trips outside of the city to, you know, shop for Christmas or get that good turkey for Thanksgiving from Pennsylvania. Right. Um, right. And so he was central to organizing this block association. But one of the things that they did in response to the rise in crime was organize a foot patrol of community members. Uh, I believe it was mostly men who had a foot patrol, walked around the neighborhood, make sure that it was safe, you know, just as a means of crime prevention so that people weren't being robbed and illicit activities weren't happening um, in the neighborhood. I'm glad you brought that up because policing becomes an issue uh, during this time, right? And in particular, aggressive policing, as well as, you know, there were documented cases of corruption in the police department, especially what was in Crown Heights, the infamous 77th precinct. Yes. And I think it's important when people talk about this, the over-policing of black neighborhoods, the conversation doesn't include the fact that black communities were themselves organizing to for their own safety. So it isn't like we're opposed to like no one loves crime. No one wants to be a victim of crime. It right. is a question of what kind of tactics, right? Right. And, you know, also the fact that when you have a community patrol, you know the people, right? The yeah. people mm-hmm. patrol know you and you don't feel like you're being profiled. You don't feel like you're going to be harassed. And you feel like the people um, in those patrols have the community's best interests at heart. These are not strangers. These are people that are your neighbors, right? And so the patrol, I think, was a really important intervention during this time period. And so the Four Star Black Association... They actually became part of a coalition of organizations that was centered at the New Muse Community Museum. Yeah, Amaka, the New Muse Museum seems like a really sort of a crux in this neighborhood. So tell us a little bit more about that. The New Muse Community Museum was essentially a black cultural space. It was located on Bedford Avenue and Eastern Parkway, and it was essentially a community space where lots of arts and sort of cultural expression was occurring. So they had a robust music program. Reggie Workman, who is a legendary jazz bassist who played with John Coltrane and Art Blakey, he was a director of music um, at the right? Um, And he brought in um, world-renowned musicians to essentially volunteer at this space and to, you know, organize performances, but also, you know, just give music lessons to, you know, everyday community members, low-cost music lessons. And so you could be 10 years old and be being taught piano by, you know, world-famous jazz musician at this space. Um, also, the there was visual arts um, at this space. So where we at, Black women artists who were featured in the uh, We Wanted a Revolution exhibit that was at mm. the museum, they exhibited their work at the New Muse Community Museum. There was a planetarium. There was a variety of activities there. And so it was a really important community space. Brooklyn Tenants Union, which was a, a tenant advocacy organization, they held their meetings there. So it was an important space. You know, I'm just struck as you guys are talking <laughs> about how different the 1970s looks 
when you're looking at it through the lens of the specific neighborhood rather than when you're looking at it from like the top down. You know, I mean, I just think in most narratives about New York in the 1970s are about an 11 like billion dollar deficit. Do you know what I mean? And like just slashing of city services and you have this picture of this kind of dire stripped down city. Uh, Amaka, what you're describing sounds so different from that. Yes, I mean, so much, you know, sort of paralleling what you're saying, there was so much power in the grassroots during this time period, right? Mm -hmm. And we have so many instances of community members banding together, whether it is to sort of beautify their neighborhood with the Eastern Parkway Coalition or people organizing with arts as, you know, with the New Muse or with the East, with Bed-Stuy. Tell us what the East is. Oh, the East was a very important cultural nationalist organization. Their space was on Claver Place, but they also had a space, I think they were at the Armory um, in Bed-Stuy for a little bit. But incredibly important cultural nationalist organization. And they also were known for jazz music as well. Mm -hmm. So lots of jazz musicians would also perform there. They also started a school called Uhuru Sasa Shule, which was a sort of, you know, community-based school for Black children um, during that time period. And so they were also in contact and sort of in the same networks with folks at the New Muse. Arthur Miller would have absolutely been in the same sort of circles um, as these folks. It's clear the portrait that is emerging of Arthur Miller is that this is a significant, he's a significant force, not only in terms of his personal accomplishments in terms of his business, but the way that he was seeking to enhance the life of the community through the Four Star Black Association and being a part of this really a vibrant ecosystem uh, of grassroots organizers. Well, and it sounds like those two aren't even really separate, yeah. right? Like that yeah. he had sort of a vision of community leadership in which business leadership was intimately tied to community leadership. Right. And we honestly don't know what could have occurred with him just in regards to the political potential. From my interview with his widow, we know that he met one-on-one with Shirley Chisholm, with Adam Clayton Powell, and he became very energized after meeting with them and had a lot of ideas and plans about things that he wanted to do in the community. So, you know, the kind of person that he was, the leadership potential, the charisma, I don't think it's far-fetched to say that perhaps he would have pursued an electoral path Mm. or perhaps he would have established a larger organization and had more of an impact. All of his potential paths came to an end, however, on June 14th, 1978. Amaka, can you walk us through the incident? What happened on June 14th, 1978? Depending on who you talk to, there are sort of different accounts of what happened. But we know that his brother, who was working for him, was driving in a car. He had As part of the renovation of buildings um, in the area, there was lots of debris and things that he had in this truck. The police pulled him over and the police began to harass him, basically saying that he didn't have a valid license or something in that area. And so people saw this incident, saw this interaction and called Arthur over to come and meet his brother. Arthur had good relationships with the police, right? And so this is, he's a kind of person that you would call to intervene in this kind of conflict because he had good relationships. They knew him. And another thing that they knew is that they knew that he had a license to carry. Mm -hmm. He had a weapon, he had a gun. And so he went to go meet his brother. And in the midst of the interaction, they began to harass Arthur Miller. He 
says and sort of raises his hands to acknowledge that he has a gun, the police basically begin to cuff him and take him in. Now, from what we know, when he left, when the police picked him up, he was alive, okay? However, he dies in police custody, the result of a chokehold. And so that sort of in piecing together the various stories, that seems to be the general outline of the incident. He is killed by chokehold by a number of police officers as a result of sort of intervening in this interaction with his brother. The Obviously, I think the parallels to today are eerie. It's a sad statement that yeah. the piecing together doesn't require too much of a stretch of the yes. imagination, yes. right? Because we have so many examples where Very this happens. You are alive when you meet the police and you're dead when they That's leave right. you. And I think this is incredibly tragic. Knowing, uh, I mean, anyone, that this happens to anyone is tragic. And of course, knowing that Arthur Miller had relationships with he knew the police, the police knew him, and he was doing all this stuff for the community. How did the community respond to this? There were protests and rallies that were held to demand accountability from the police. So the Black United Front emerges at this period. It's an organization of, of various sort of Black leaders and organizations throughout Brooklyn, and they band together primarily around this issue of police violence, but they ultimately engage in other Black political activity as related to electoral politics, as related to just, you know, Black racial politics and like community issues of the time period. They had technically emerged a few years prior um, in response to the police killing of Randy Evans in, I believe it was East New York, um, yeah. where he was killed. But they really do sort of get some energy, large marches and rallies that occur as a result of Arthur Miller's killing. They march across the Brooklyn Bridge to City Hall and demand for accountability. And so the community was very devastated. Their businesses up and down Nostrand Avenue posted pictures of Arthur Miller in the window after um, he died. So this, you know, was certainly something that was devastating to the community to experience this kind of killing. Do we know if um, if politicians at the time reacted to it? Like he had met with Chisholm, he had met with Adam Clayton Powell. Was there any response from from the government? That's a great question. I know that Al Van, you know, essentially marches in some of these rallies. I don't know anything beyond that, though. I believe that they asked Shirley Chisholm sort of comments about it. And I think that she publicly sort of, you know, said that it was a sad event. But I don't remember if she and I don't believe that she sort of does anything to sort of stand in the way or to sort of intervene in the police investigation. You know, I feel like that's, again, also a sad cycle where there's still this kind of not wanting to criticize the state. And if you're an elected official, you're an agent of the state. Yeah, yeah, and the tightrope that politicians like Chisholm were walking in terms in terms of, you know, feeling like they needed to stay in power and to advocate for their communities versus stand up over issues like this. Well, we know that the NAACP did call for an inquiry, a federal inquiry, and in August of 1979, the Justice Department Civil Rights Division determined that there was insufficient evidence to prove that the New York City police had violated his civil rights. And they called it, quote, 
a tragic, unforeseeable accident which occurred during a lawful mm. arrest. <laughs> and talk about a transhistorical statement. Like, I feel like that's what we always hear, yep. um, you know, throughout. So with this, Amaka, as we move into in 1980, you know, this was a, a year-long campaign, it seemed. What, what then became of the actions or activism and the kind of memory of, of Arthur Miller? Um, well, you know, the Black United Front continues to sort of mobilize around this issue, but unfortunately, you know, as you mentioned, no one was held accountable, right? None of the officers are <laughs> held accountable. We know that in the mid-1980s, there's a major scandal of the 77th precinct, and we find out that police officers are planting drugs on community members. They are robbing drug dealers. They are shown to be quite corrupt mm -hmm. through this scandal. And there's a big shakeup there at the 77th precinct. And this memory of Arthur Miller does not fade. We know that in Do the Right Thing, Radio Raheem's murder by chokehold by the police is essentially echoing that of Arthur Miller very intentionally. Spike Lee references Arthur Miller in the credits to the movie. And so we know that this was, again, an event that had a major impact. It's now represented um, in that film. In terms of outcomes, we're where we're at. You know, we continue to see innocent people being killed by the police. And we continue to see communities band together and resist against police violence, as we see in Black Lives Matter and various um, community organizing. And unfortunately, it's not an issue that, you know, has been resolved, right? The history keeps repeating itself. Love this podcast? Then head over to Apple Podcasts and search for Flatbush and Maine to subscribe, rate, and review us. This increases our rankings and makes it easier for interested listeners like you to find us. One of the ways we were really able to get at the story, not just of what happened to Arthur Miller, but the kinds of activities he was doing in and for his community was through the Eastern Parkway Coalition records archived here at Brooklyn Historical Society. So this is a really wonderfully rich collection of about nine record cartons of documents that chronicle the history of this organization, which still exists today, the Eastern Parkway Coalition, um, from its inception in the 1970s up through when it was donated in 2007. And the Eastern Parkway Coalition is a community organization based in Crown Heights. They ran summer youth programs. They were incredibly deeply involved in gardening and block beautification and were very involved in just general community organizing and planning. And I think it speaks to, like the as we were speaking about in the last segment, the kind of the network of organizations yeah. that were tying together civic movements, business movements, community movements. It's an amazing collection because there's so many different things that you can find in it. And one of the institutions whose stories is told through some of the archival documents in this collection is that of the New Muse Community Museum of Brooklyn. So the New Muse, as it was called, was established in 1973 by civic-minded residents of Crown Heights neighborhood. And the idea was to foster all kinds of forms of community and artistic expression and to build a series of sort of physical outposts where those kinds of events and that kind of organization could take place. So as Amaka was saying, this was music, yeah. this was art, but this was also, you know, tenants' rights organizations forming and places of education 
education, places of political activism. This is part of a an, almost a nationwide trend we saw in communities around the country. Marlana Karenga established a similar center in California. There was The Way in Minneapolis. There was uh, Mira Baraka established a similar place in Newark. The East is also established at this time, the East being you know the cultural center in Bed-Stuy. This is part of a wave of community organizers and cultural creators and artists working to challenge the loss of services that many of these communities are experiencing. And I think that loss of services, the timing here, is actually really important to understand. So the New Muse was founded in 1973. This is the tail end of the Lindsay administration Mm -hmm. here in New York City. It's the beginning of the mayoralty of Abe Beam, who was like one of the most put upon mayors in the history of New York City. He inherited a shocking debt and the financial crisis and was the person who was essentially responsible for cutting unbelievable city services jobs, further pushing the movement of largely white immigrant people out of the city, cutting the tax base. So this was a a time of sort of dire financial pain in New York. It's also an interesting financial time nationally yeah, because yeah. you're coming on the tails of the great society mm-hmm. and at the federal level you're actually seeing some really interesting funding models coming out of the federal government we've talked in the past episode about you know Bobby Kennedy visiting yeah. and uh, yeah. our first community development corporations yeah. in the late yeah. 1960s but in the 1970s even under Nixon who we normally associate with significant conservatism you're seeing growing public works money coming out of the federal government well, yeah I mean it's interesting that the new muse is established in 73 because also in 73 was this Nixon law called the Community Employment and Training Act or CETA and this was a 1970s version way more modest but version of the WPA the New Deal era program which was designed to put people to work. It was essentially an employment program, especially for the kinds of sectors that would particularly suffer during periods of economic austerity, you know, where people feel like, oh, we don't have money for the arts, or we don't have money for cultural programming. CETA was used for that, and it was modeled, I think, on a program in San Francisco. But by the late uh, 70s, New York City was one of the largest administrators of CETA funds. In and part so, because it needed it. So yeah, badly. yeah. I mean, you know, the other thing I think when we talk about the way New York was suffering, I think we want, I think it's important to emphasize that the outer boroughs always felt it harder. And so that's why this institution is that much more important. And so we're, you know, one of the first documents that we're going to look at is a letter dated January 11th, 1978. So So, this is like six months before Arthur Miller's death. Exactly. And this letter is from Andrew Gill, who is the executive director of the New Muse Museum. And it's a long letter. It's a long letter. It's directed to the Community Board 8. CB8, as they're called in New York. Yes, exactly. It's an appeal for community development grant. The document's first half lists the things that they propose to do with the money. 
with the money that they're asking for the money that they're asking from, for from, from, the, from, from the community, from the community board. board. So, yeah. so the new muse is asking for money all over the place, right? Yes. They're looking yes. for funding wherever they can yes. get it. And so we learn later that they actually successfully applied for CETA money for a few of the programs um, that they've got going. They're also looking for money locally from their community board. So they're really savvy fundraisers. And I think yeah. the thing that is so interesting to me about this document is that it really gives kind of the breadth of what exactly they're envisioning this museum yeah, well, you know, to be. Uh, for people who work in the nonprofit sector, there is this dictum of the budget tells the story, right? Like what people either do with their money or what they say they want to do with their money kind of gives you a sense of what's actually yeah. happening. And we're so fortunate for, to, for this document actually lists yes. the kinds of activities and gives you a sense of the scope of what they envisioned for their community museum. So first of all, they needed bricks and mortar, right? Mm -hmm. And so the big chunk of money that they were asking for was the ability to purchase where they were already situated, um, which was 1530 Bedford Avenue, and then also to be able to renovate it to support a series of programs but I think the programs are actually more interesting than the brick and mortar because it tells you what they envision the new muse to be. And it's awesome. I know. I it's go really there. awesome. Oh. So one of the first things listed, of course, is a, a gallery. The new muse was known for featuring art, but it also says here to redesign and install exhibition paneling, movable walls, floor-controlled lighting, cover bare pipes and fuse boxes on walls for increased safety and appearance, redesign natural history gallery habitats, add reptile, fish, and amphibian habitats. I mean, we're museum professionals, so this is very exciting yeah, like to us. Yeah, out on this. And also, they, it looks like they have already done a good job in fundraising. They've received $75,000 from the NEA mm -hmm. to install a permanent exhibition called The Black Contribution to Brooklyn. Wow. But this is not all. Um, yes. This is not a traditional museum. Actually, there's a lot more going on here. They're proposing a planetarium, a photo lab that is specifically geared towards students, they have um, a piano lab and then a dance lab and a concert hall, an audiovisual recording studio. We could really use that sometimes. Yes, for our podcast. <laughs> an art room. I mean, this is a, a remarkable vision of an active community center. Yeah. On the page, it has like a map of its association with other institutions and organizations within their district. So they absolutely were very clearly trying to network and mm -hmm. complement the available programs and resources with what they were doing. It, it's, it's such an efficient and resourceful approach to community development. And we'll put pictures up of those documents on our show notes so that you can see this map. But when you really look at it, you get a sense of just the, the unbelievable diversity of organizations. On one page, it says the following is a partial listing of the organizations active in District 8 that have utilized the home of the new muse to present their various progress and events to the public. So here are some of the organizations that utilize the new muse, the Caribbean Community Health Association, the Concerned Black Educators, the Crown Heights JCs, Our Lady of Charity Church, the Sisterhood of Black Single Mothers, the Caribbean Repertory Theater, the Black Ensemble Players, the West Indian American Day Carnival Association, which we've had a podcast mm -hmm. about, and best Restoration Camera Club. So that's just who was just utilizing a, their case, space. Right. When you look at the list of numbered organizations that were affiliates of the New Muse, you see number four, which is... The Four Star Block Association, which was the brainchild of Arthur Miller. Yes. 
And actually, we learned from this little blurb about it that uh, the new muse successfully sponsored a CETA proposal that will provide the four-star block association with a neighborhood rejuvenation program consisting of a paid staff of 10 persons supported by a personnel budget of almost $116,000. So they were they were moving. They in were this moving. And this suggests that on January 11th, 1978, the beginning of 1978, Arthur Miller was prepared to launch a program that would employ 10 people. That said, 1978 progresses. And the next document that we're going to look at comes after his tragic death in June um, of 1978. We're looking at a flyer that is titled, We Remember. And then it has the picture of Arthur Miller in suit and tie, a very businesslike picture. And basically the flyer reads, on Wednesday evening, June 14th, 1978, Arthur Miller, a young father, husband, and community leader, was brutally beaten to death by more than 20 policemen from the 77th Precinct. Mayor Koch stated, there will be no whitewash. In October 1978, a Brooklyn grand jury convened by D.A. Gold returned with no indictment. The Justice Department of the United States was supposed to investigate. To this date, we have heard nothing from them. And I think we can date this flyer to mid-1979. Yes. So just for context, the decision from the federal government comes down in August of 79. But this is a mobilization to prompt and make sure that this happens. What's interesting is the list of speakers that gives you a sense of who was emerging out of this movement and some of these names we recognize. First of all, Andy Gill, who was the director of The New Muse and a partner of Arthur Miller in so many ways, is one of the speakers on here. I'm also struck by the fact that Reverend Herbert Daughtry is on here. Mm -hmm. So Amaka mentioned several times the Black United Front. Um, At this time, Reverend Daughtry was the chairman of the Black United Front. So we could already see the major role that they're playing in keeping this issue alive. Assemblyman Albert Van, a rising politician in Brooklyn at the time. Sam Penn, the chairman of Brooklyn Corps. Which we've talked about on this podcast. Which we've talked about. So we've got a really broad group of people speaking on behalf of Arthur Miller at what is being advertised in this flyer, which is an outdoor rally and mobilization in honor of Miller demanding justice that will take place on Thursday, June 14th, 1979, which, by the way, is the one-year anniversary of his death. And, you know, the other thing is at the bottom it says... June 16th, Community Voter Registration Drive kickoff. Such a good point. Which is a clear um, awareness on the part of the organizers of the need to engage in political power building in order to address these kinds of concerns. Yeah, this is about getting justice for Arthur Miller, but it's obviously about so much more. And I think the context that you and Amaka provided in terms of, you know, the corruption of the police at the time, um, the, uh, you know, the, the feeling that there was no recourse to for justice for this kind of violence and the fact that Arthur Miller was not the only moment of police yeah. violence in this neighborhood yeah. in the 1970s there's a clear acknowledgement that this is a structural issue one thing we didn't talk about in the first segment was the aftermath of Arthur Miller we talked about his unbelievable potential the possibility of his role as a politician. But what happens to all of these initiatives? What happens to this vision after his death in Crown Heights? It's not, it doesn't just go away, right? right? right, right. And to that end, I think this this 
really remarkable folder that you found in the Eastern Parkway Coalition records speaks to the kind of the ongoing initiatives after his death. Yes, yeah, so it's a folder. Um, it is white. It is a standard kind of press folder, you know, with pockets inside when you open it. On the cover, it has the title with vertically stacked words, Nostrand Avenue Community Commerce Association Incorporated. And then uh, if you flip the folder over, it's this really striking but moving picture so sad. of Arthur Miller. And it says... Arthur Miller, you can kill a man, but you cannot kill an idea. And, you know, this is an organization that Arthur Miller helped to found. Inside of this folder, we find a bunch of things. We find some letters, we find some clippings. But let's look at this letter dated November 27th, 1978. So again, several months after the death of Arthur Miller. And this is on letterhead for the No Strand Avenue Community Commerce Association Incorporated. And it is basically written to, the, again, the Community Planning Board, CB8. Right. And um, I guess... From the acting yeah, executive director yeah. who clearly took over after right. Arthur Miller, William Hampton. Maybe this might be a point to tell people what the Community Board... People live in New York are familiar, but a lot right. of people aren't familiar with the Community True. Board. Probably a lot of people in New York are yeah. familiar with what they are. <laughs> so the Community Board kind of evolved out of a system whereby the community would have input on, you know, things like land use and budget priorities for their district. And so it became this this place of, of, of where you could have direct interface with the way that your district was managed and where resources were administered. In that context, this letter is written from um, the Nostrand Avenue Community Commerce Association, Incorporated, to the community board chairperson. And the, the gist of it, it's very, it's a lot of legalese, so we won't kill everybody, but of course, by reading it all, but of course, we'll put it up on yeah. our show notes. The gist of it is that the Nostrand Avenue Community Commerce Association, NACA, had already received a half a million dollar federal grant. It was basically a community development block grant, and it established a NACA capital corporation, and the idea was that it would be able to leverage this money to actually get even more money to support and capitalize all kinds of businesses along Nostrand Avenue um, to, in order to make them viable, in order to allow them to grow, and actually to allow them to employ a lot more people. We don't know when they received this half a million dollars. We don't know if that's when Arthur Miller was its executive director. But again, it really says this man was so significant to this community. He's an unbelievable planner, too. Yeah. He was like just a very successful administrator. It's amazing. Yeah. So they are writing this letter to the community board, which has its regular hearings, to have the community board include them and their work in recommending budget priorities for community development to the borough. And according to the clippings that are also included in this folder, it looks like they were successful. And so I'm struck actually by this Amsterdam News clipping from December 23rd, 1978, in which they basically are tracking the expansion of a particular firm. In this case, it's a, 
a, a ten-year-old business called the Aetna Casting Corporation. But it's it's they're clearly being sponsored by NACA, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, Hampton, who was the acting director at the time, is quoted in this, and it also says the Nostrand Avenue Community Commerce Association was formed last March, so it's very young, to coordinate and facilitate economic development projects within the Crown Heights area. According to Hampton, NACA is a posthumous legacy surviving Arthur Miller, who, Mm. along with Andrew Gill, founded the association, which is also sponsored by Assemblyman Woodrow Lewis. So his legacy is living on in this community. It is, and gives you a sense of this network, this social network of people reaching out to each other, checking out what other institutions are doing in their neighborhood, and trying to think of ways they could partner to create opportunities for their community. So here's Andrew Gill, the head of the New Muse, a cultural museum, and you have Arthur Miller, a businessman, working together to establish this association to foster the growth of businesses in Nostrand Avenue. Uh, it's, it's just an amazing sense of the kind of activity that was flourishing uh, during this time, and it, it drives home even more so the tragedy. I mean, this association was founded in March, and April, May, June, not even three months passed, and this life was taken away. In this segment of Voices of Brooklyn, we'll hear from Florence Miller, who was the wife of Arthur Miller. A homemaker until Miller's death, Florence Miller had to vacate the building where she lived with her family, the place where her husband was the superintendent. She got a job at a bakery on the Lower East Side and arranged for housing for herself and her four children in Crown Heights. This interview was part of the Voices of Crown Heights project and was conducted by our guest for this episode, Amaka Okachukwu. Segments one and two of this episode really gave the historical context for this interview. And so for this segment, we are just going to let listeners hear directly from Florence Miller. In this first excerpt that we're going to listen to, Florence talks about the kind of work that Arthur Miller was doing in the community and his significance to the community. After he became, you know, the superintendent of the building, you know, he said, this got all these little kids in the area. You know, we would take our kids places. We would take our kids, you know, out of the city. Uh, they would come to Florida. They would go to the Bahamas. And a lot of kids never got to leave the area. Well, we need to do things in the area that the kids could be a part of. So then he started, you know, he went to the police department to find out what could he do to block off the streets and, you know, just have a, a good time with the kids. And the band would play. We would have a block party. And the beginning was just for, you know, the kids on our block so they could come out and play and be safe. Mm-hmm. And then there were kids that he went to school with, so then they started, you know, getting larger and larger and larger. And we went out to Long Island to do some work for one of the ladies that had moved out of the building. Mm-hmm. And on the corner of her block, they were doing some work on the park. And he just happened to say something to the effect of, you know, Wow. He said, you know, they should do something like this, he said, to the park not far from where we live. And her husband said, you know, there are CEDA funds uh, that come out every year for parks. He said, you don't ever get CEDA funds? He said, well, what is CEDA funds? Mm -hmm. Well, then the man started telling him about CEDA funds and gave him a book to look in. And he started looking into that. And he talked to um, 
his name, what is his name? And, Andrew Gill? Yes. I think it was. He spoke to him, and there was another man he spoke to. Next thing I knew, we were talking about uh, petitions and this and that and the other, and getting CEDAR funds. Well, when it comes to traveling and going to make speeches, that was not me. I will back you up, I will push you, I will help you get to where you want to go, but I am a background person. Mm-hmm. So he and Andrew Gill went different places. Uh, he went different places with some other men that Andrew Gill in, in, uh, introduced them to. Before I knew it, they would see the funds coming to our area again. Mm-hmm. We had uh, the garbage guys would come and pick up the cans, and uh, I mean, they would just leave everything a mess. Uh, People say, well, that's the way they always do. He said, well, they're not supposed to always do it. You know, what do y'all do? Well, let me just pick them up. That's, the, that's just the way they are. I said, no, 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 no. That's not the way they're supposed to be. Next thing I know, they were putting them cans back in line, back on the sidewalk like they were supposed to. He went to the sanitation department. I mean, he didn't, he didn't fear anything. Mm-hmm. He felt that he can address and he would talk to anyone he had to talk to to get his point across. And he didn't care who you were, where you were, or how you were. You, you know, you're a man like me, we put on our pants the same way. So let's talk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we started seeing little changes in the area. You know, uh, we would, he would, in the beginning, he would take money out of his pocket and get a bus. And we would take a busload of kids to uh, Bear Mountain. We would go to Palisades Amusement Park. I mean, they said, then get the kids out. He said, well, my kids are going to do it, so we'll, we'll take a few other kids with us. Mm-hmm. Then the four-star block association was formed. Then we would take two, sometimes three buses, and we'll go to Hershey, Pennsylvania. Uh, this is like an every-year trip. You know, people did their Christmas shopping, the turkeys for Thanksgiving, uh, Burlington's Coat Factory. You know, it was just a wonderful thing to do. And we got uh, young men and women from our area. We would see the funds, uh, a salary to patrol the block. But people felt safe. You saw more and more of the older people outside. Uh, they would walk them to the supermarket, which was on Nostrand Avenue, and they would walk them back home. Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't so afraid anymore. It was a, it was a good time. Mm-hmm. It was a pleasant time. A lot of smiles, a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges in seeking justice for Arthur Miller's death was the fact that we don't know what went on between the time that he was taken into custody by the police and the time that he was pronounced dead. And here we'll hear Florence Miller talk about the different stories that she was told about what the circumstances might have been around her husband's death. Okay, um, the gentleman that came to the door and was calling me, Ms. Arthur, Ms. Arthur, he told me that he was on Nostrand Avenue. Art had a blue pickup truck. His brother, Joe, was driving it. Uh, Joe left the building on Nostrand Avenue, and he was going to, towards Rogers Avenue. Where he was going, I don't know. The police stopped Joe. Now, see, this I, I don't understand. The police stopped Joe with, in the truck because he had a suspended license. How do they know his license had been suspended? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know? Okay, then they sent him back to get the owner of the truck, which was Art. Why? Mm-hmm. Why did they send him to, to, to get his brother? Mm-hmm. 
you know, if they want to, why didn't they take Kim and the truck back to Nostrand Avenue? They had ought to come to towards Rogers Avenue. Now, um, I've had a permit for a gun that he used to wear on his side. Mm -hmm. He got the permit uh, through the police department. He took shooting lessons on target things through the police department. The police was always out building, uh, lifting weights with him, doing everything. So they all knew he had the gun. All of a sudden, the guy said he held up his hand, they saw his gun, and the police panicked. Why would they panic? It was holstered. They knew he had it. Mm -hmm. And he said, all hell broke loose. He said, I don't know what was it. He said, they were, they just, there were so many of them on him, we don't know what happened, and then they drug him in the car. Mm -hmm. Then I heard that uh, Art was coming around the building. They didn't, I didn't hear that Joe had gone. They said that Arthur was walking down, uh, what was that, Park Place? I think it was Park Place. He was walking down Park Place, and uh, he was jumped by the police. I don't know. I wasn't there. Mm -hmm. But then his brother told us that he was told to go and get his brother. He don't know how the police knew his license had been suspended. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they said, well, it was an accident because the police panicked when they saw the gun. They had no way of knowing that uh, it was registered. They had no way of knowing this. They had no way of knowing that. And it was pushed under the rug as usual when they told a black man. I'm so glad that during this episode we were able to introduce our listeners to the unbelievably tragic and contemporarily resonant story of Arthur Miller. And I want to invite everybody um, back to BHS's Brooklyn Heights location on Thursday, June 14th, to attend an event called The Police Killing of Arthur Miller 40 Years Later. So we'll be hosting a pretty amazing panel of people talking about Arthur Miller, the events around his death, and of course his legacy. These include MSNBC's Joy Ann Reed, uh, former city council member Al Van, who we learned a little bit about in the episode, Tenjiwe McHarris, who is an activist, and Lumumba Bandele, as well as special guests from the Miller family, including Florence Miller herself. At the beginning of the program, Zahir and Amaka will be introducing a series of oral histories from the Voices of Crown Heights projects, um, including those who remember this tragic event from 1978. So this will take place on Thursday, June 14th at 6.30 p.m. The event is $5, free for members, and we'll link to the site where you can get tickets on our show notes. The program that I'm looking forward to as well, besides that one, is also, interestingly enough, thematically consistent with this episode. It's called The New Urban Resistance, Progressives Go Local. With our federal government now mired in dysfunction, cities are now becoming the new frontier of progressive change, presenting solutions to the issues ranging from economic inequality to public health. So on Monday, June 25th, 6.30 p.m., join Juan Gonzalez from the New York Daily News, New York Council member and longtime friend of Flatbush and Maine, Brad Lander, civil rights and immigration supervisor at Make the Road New York, Yaritza Mendez, 
and Philadelphia City Council person Helen Jim to dig into the power of local advocacy and activism. The program will be moderated by the nation's Lizzie Ratner, and this is co-sponsored by The Nation magazine as part of its Cities Rising series. Again, that's Monday, June 25th, 6.30 p.m. here at our BHS Brooklyn Heights headquarters, and it's $5 for non-members free for members, and as we've always been saying, we hope by now you have your membership so you can take advantage of all of these wonderful programs. And with this episode of Flatbush and Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. Thanks to our guest, Amaka Okachuku. You can learn more about Flatbush and Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush dash Maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Golia.